Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to the table. But before we do, could you do us a favor and hit that subscribe button? While you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Hey, Rob, my friend. Welcome back to the table. Leadership drip. Um, it is good to be back. It is always good to be back. I have my second cup of coffee in like 20 minutes, so I should be raring to go. I got tacos on the mind. <laughs> you do have tacos on the mind. And for those locally, Trace Hermanos is the way to go for tacos. No shout out there. We don't get paid for that. So <laughs> We have no sponsors. <laughs> so if we did, they would be it. And that would be fantastic because tacos yeah. and coffee are two of our favorite things together. So... Uh, we do have a great guest list, though. We do. Terry Parkman is the next-gen pastor at River Valley Church. That's up in Minnesota. We love Minnesota people. I can't help it. I'm addicted to Minnesota people. They're the kindest people on the planet, yeah. are they not? Indeed. So uh, he's also the director of River Valley Institute, which I love. I hope that we could talk about that tonight or today. Um, his heartbeat is for this emerging generation of youth and young adults and helping them discover their purpose, develop, developing them as leaders, and empowering them to step out into the plan God has for their lives. I think we should borrow that as our mission statement for the podcast. That's exactly what we believe, man. Stolen. <laughs> All right. Terry, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for having me out, guys. It's an honor. So it is, we're recording Super Bowl week. This will come out yeah. probably more spring training for baseball. But we got to know. Yeah, I assume you're a Vikings guy. But who do you have this? Are you Vikings? Nah, I like I am when I I live here, so I kind of gotta be. Okay, but, but I'm yeah. Vikings kind of Minnesota teams break hearts, so it's indeed, indeed. I'm a Chicago guy, so I know heartbreak. I'm I'm a Pittsburgh guy, so I know nothing but victory. <laughs> yeah. <That's- laughs> but we gotta ask. It is Super Bowl week. We've got Rams, we've got Bengals. We'll do our yeah. our four. Our, we'll do our picks. We'll see how wrong we are. But as the guest of the show, we'll let you pick first. Who you got? I'm pulling for the Bengals, man. That that the story of them getting to where they are, Burrows, all that stuff. I like it. I like the story. I know in Christian circles, everybody tries to find the most Christian team and then they cheer for them. I'm not that guy. I like the story that leads up. <laughs> I hope so, they come to Jesus, guys. I hope they come to Jesus. But I love the. Uh, I love the stories that come behind the underdog, the unexpected stories, and I like to see how those things play out. So, you know, they're great sermon illustrations for the next year. So why not? <laughs> I love a Super Bowl where it's not the same people over again. Oh, yes, yes. I love that. So, like, and Jeff and I were talking a little bit earlier. I'm kind of, I'm an emotional picker, right? So so I have emotional ties to both. Being from Southern California, L.A., like that whole vibe. But like you, I'm loving the Joe Burrow story. I'm loving the Bengals yep. story. Um, at the end of the day... Man, that Cooper Cup and Matthew Stafford combo. I'm thinking. I'm thinking Rams twenty seven. Oh, you're putting it. You're Bengals twenty one. You're putting numbers on it. Like okay, there's yeah. no betting on the show. No betting on the show. No, we are no doing do that. Uh, I guess I get the pick now. I, I'm an old guy uh, and not the oldest guy at the table, but I'm of a certain age. Thanks, Jeff. And so I think I'm leaning on Matthew Stafford. Like, I think this is his one shot. I so, think this is his one shot. Like, he may limp through it, but this is his one shot at it. So, yeah. um, The way he was able – that was him with the shoulder, right? Throwing that touchdown pass. Yeah. 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 The heart there is incredible. Yeah. So, Again, sermon illustrations. I've been taking notes on these things you can preach on later. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. 
<laughs> Let's say we, we want to get to some real business now that we've got the Super Bowl stuff out of the way and are probably all wrong about it somehow. Um, but help us just with a little bit of framework because you're the next-gen pastor. That's sort of a new buzzword in church. It has a lot of meanings in a lot of different contexts. But what for you is sort of describes this next-gen gen and how that kind of fits what you do? Yeah, next-gen pastor and anything next-gen is kind of like a catch-all word like uh, media pastor used to be. You remember when churches had media pastors? Yeah. What are they going to do, preach to the computers? Come on. Right. You know, and now they're indispensable, like communication directors and everything like that. And we've been able to define what that is in the church. Next-gen pastors like that. It's everything from hey, uh, we don't have enough to pay a kid's pastor and a youth pastor, so you're the next-gen pastor, and you're doing both. We're just going to give you a higher title. To you oversee multiple departments while leading them, to you oversee the leads of those departments. I think a true version of a next-gen pastor is an individual who oversees those who lead youth, lead kids, lead young adults, and lead interns. So think cradle to career, kids, youth, young adults, and an internship leadership program all fits within next-gen. And it's really, if you're in that space, you need to have a holistic perspective on the outcomes that each of them need to embody, teach them how to cross-pollinate with each other, and nail the transitions between each ministry. I think those are the biggest jobs of any next-gen pastor out there. I think when you boil it up to a global scale, it starts to include the next-gen of leaders, those individuals who are about to take over movements and megachurches yeah. that are already in the game. And they're, they're like uh, Ali Bonilla, right? Yeah. He is that he is that next-gen guy who is, so it's not just kids but as people who are about to change the game in the capital c church world that's a great okay. way to explain i mean yeah, was, i, I think it's good. a fantastic yeah. explanation and i mean yeah you could say it's similar to or in line with what we would call a christian education pastor perhaps or a christian yeah, or family ministry pastor perhaps yeah. at one point but but i think your nuances are a little bit different two things that i love the way you explain it is one is nail the transitions between yeah right i mean and I think that requires a holistic vision for the church more than just a holistic vision for the program. Right. I mean, there's, okay. there's that piece to it. And then I love the part where you added like, like the Ellie Bonillas of the world who are ready to step into these huge leadership roles and, okay. um, and mega churches and, and whatever yep. else is, is out there. I, I love the way you explain that. Yeah. yeah and I'm, with so, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Jerry. I'm, I'm with an organization called Empower 21, which I, I, I help to lead the global side of the next gen piece. And next gen there means those people who are about to lead movements. Mm -hmm. And so it's such a wide ranging word and kind of a semantic that applies to multiple places. And so I think if you can just grab the heart for the future of the capital C church mm -hmm. and yeah. making sure that everything that runs in that regard runs well, I think that's a great broad definition of next gen. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And you mentioned sort of Empower 21, which is more of a global outreach um, yeah. that, that we're, we're friends with people who lead that organization or lead in that organization. Um, what are you seeing sort of as distinctions between the global church and then the American church, especially in this sort of conversation on next generation and in our, our favorite context, young adults? How are those yeah. things similar and how are they maybe different? The similarities are increasing and the differences are decreasing because we live, in a, we live in a global generation, arguably the world's first global generation. And we might not be speaking the same verbal language, but we're speaking the same digital language. Mm. The amount of time, four, four to eight hours a day that people spend on their phones creates the same neurological pathway as it does when you learn a, a verbal language. What happens when the whole world starts learning the same language yeah. and you have a global generation sharing values and culture 
across screens quicker than they are in communication in their own cities and their own countries. You have a global culture that we haven't seen since the Tower of Babel. And effectively, that changes how quick, quickly culture changes. And with that in mind, if you're going to lead next gen, what we have to do is discover those emerging themes that we're seeing in common take place all over the world. And we have to have to start having those conversations locally. So that I would say the similarities are what I just said. The differences are the rate that that's changing. There's some individuals that are early on where not a lot of change is happening and some that have so much access to technology where those changes have happened very rapidly. And so it's more like, not what are the differences, but where are you on the timeline? Because I think everybody's gonna go across that timeline that technology pushes us towards and we're gonna become more of a global community in regard to next gen. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, it's not about the differences, it's about the timeline. So, so if you look at I mean, church history, so let, let's just get geeky for a second. If you look yeah. at the whole, the whole of church history, right? It, it wasn't a singular movement or a singular moment or a singular leader. It was the timeline of those leaders. So for example, you have people like John Huss who were pre-reformers who yep. ushered in people like Martin Luther for the Reformation, yep. right? So I think when you start talking about necessarily differences, but timelines, I love that concept because I feel like we're on a timeline for this for this next fourth great reformation, what I would call the fourth great reformation, which is the yeah. local church or the church in general, the church global. For right? sure. So this reformation of the church, and it's not so much about church being different, it's about where the church is on that timeline in the reformation. So like on campus, what I'm seeing is, is outpourings or pockets of this reformation mm -hmm. happening as they redefine and yep. reimagine what church is on yep. that yeah. timeline. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. What's unique about that is there's a social anthropologist named Margaret Mead in 1972, wasn't a believer, but she made this crazy statement. She said, throughout history, most cultures are disfigurative. What that means is parents and grandparents can help their children to understand the future. So little changes between a grandparent and their grandkid that the grandparent could equip the grandkid and that grandkid would be fully equipped. Most times throughout culture, this happens. A few times throughout culture, it becomes co-figurative where change happens so fast that parents and grandparents look to the young to understand the future, MTV generation Gen X. She said in 1972 that she anticipates a time is coming for the first time in human history, very first time, never happened before, where technology changes so fast that culture will be prefigurative, where children and grandchildren will have to figure out for themselves mm. what their values will be. And wow. that was in 1972 where computers were as big as the room you're in right now. Yeah, Today, yeah. Technology has informed our, our thought process so much and values and culture changes so quickly on average every four months for a young person, uh, every year for an older adult, that they just got to discover for themselves what their values would be. Add that into not just a post-Christian culture, but a post-truth culture. You have a recipe for biblical illiteracy and a fallout that, you know, but also a staging for a new revival. So yeah. when you think next gen, the people right now, what we're talking about, guys, is the bridge between what was and what's coming. Yeah. Oh, and, and you mentioned this emerging themes, like, and I'm a, I'm a dad of young adults and teenagers. And like, I feel like the, the shift is always shifting. Like as soon as I catch up with like one thing, one expression, especially in language, like one word of what it means, they moved on to something else. Like, it just seems like it's moving so fast and, and I'm a Gen X guy. So like, yeah. I'm more analog, somewhere caught between the analog digital, like, like both, you know, I got a record player Nintendo, and I got, I got my iPhone. Yeah. How do you, how are you gauging and being able to keep up with things as they shift so fast? How are they, when these themes and trends are moving so quickly, 
How, how are you keeping up with that? Yeah, it's almost impossible uh, to keep up with it because things shift so much. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to understand is that what that means with culture changing every four months is that a young person's opinion on what they have on one day, four months later might change because new information arrives at their doorstep. So what's not important is that we keep up with trends. What is important is that we keep up with how the conversations are shifting due to trends. So you want to talk about identity, right? And how some people identify as one thing, um, even though biologically they're another thing, and then they want to become another thing. And, and it changes. A student's opinion might be one perspective on one day and four months later might change because of what they accessed online. And so I think it's important to be up on how the conversation is changing for all these areas mm. rather than on what's cool and what's not. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, no, we're deep in thought, man. Like, <laughs> it's good stuff. This is a very cerebral conversation. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's it's very deep, but it's so needed because I think on the surface level, we get extremely frustrated with the inability to actually keep up with change. And so instead of, instead of trying to figure out or instead of putting ourselves in positions where we can be effective, we go back or we default to rhythms or habits or expectations that that we're okay with or that we're familiar with and right so what it, that does is that creates that cyclical nature of ineffective next-gen ministry mm-hmm. right so we talk about perpetuating youth program cycles that aren't really that effective but it's it's a youth program so we got to do it that way or college ministry programs where mm-hmm. we say well if you're gonna do college ministry then you have to do it this way i mean so defaulting back to those rhythms or those ideas or those patterns that are controllable or common to us doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing a good job or being effective in leading the next generation forward. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I think, I think what's important to recognize is that in that is when we fall back on those things, it has more to do with insecurity sometimes for a lot of leaders than it does ability and perspective. We always fall back to the thing that gave us the most significance in the past. And we rarely let go of that to move forward into what we need to. And we won't let go of models that brought us significance in the past because we're afraid that if we lose significance and we lose relevance. And yep. there's a big distinction between the two that we have to help the next generation really be able to understand. Like your significance does not put any weight on your relevance. Yes. Your relevance changes shape regardless of what is significant in your life or not. And being able to have that conversation about who they are biblically is one of the most important things and will help them to navigate the future as leaders. Yeah. I say this a lot and it's one of my life quotes for myself. And I say, if I'm trying to be relevant, I'm already one step behind. At least one step. We're called to be revolutionary. Right. We're called to be revolutionary, especially as followers of Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, right? The the author and the finisher of our faith. We're, we're not called to be relevant. We're called to be revolutionary. We're called to lead forward. We're called to see beyond where we are. We're called to lead past even our glory days, right? We don't get to live in our glory days, mm-hmm. right? Our glory days are far ahead of us in heaven. Like those are our glory days. Everything else in between here and there is about being flexible and moldable and open and willing to step into whatever it is that the spirit is leading us to do. And that means Letting go of our pride, letting go of our patterns, letting go of, you know, our tower of Babel pursuits, yeah. right? So yeah. that's it. You know, I think this is a generation of leaders that if you want to go Marvel, you got to be Tony Stark's like you can't, yeah. you can't be Captain America. You can't no. hold on to yesterday. You got to be a Tony Stark. Everything is in the future. Yeah. And you yeah. got to work towards that as leaders today. Yeah. And, and 
Soteria, a mutual boss of ours, um, Dr. Wilson, I think he coined the term. I don't know, maybe not. But it was like 20 years ago, he was he was talking about local church, sort of the global local church. That's a Rickism. Is it a Rick? That's a Rickism. Okay. So he, then then Billy stole it from Rick somewhere. I think but, it's a Rickism. Rick said I, it a bunch too. We'll give him both credit. So either way, I feel like the church has moved to that space. Like so, some friends of ours that the belonging here uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. They're from Australia. Their campus is in Nashville. They have a campus in Columbia, Tennessee, and they have a whole church in Australia now. And I know another church that meets in like Rockford, Illinois, and they've got a campus in Africa. And it feels like there is, we're at this space where church is global. It's local and it's global all at the same time. So how can we as the local church pastors, like I, I have a church plant here, how can we stay local and be global and hold that tension that seems to be coming or is here? I love that question. And it's an important question because global, it sounds like something Smeagol would say in the Lord of the Rings when he was yeah. coughing. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> local, but uh, global is a thing, global, local. And I think a lot of people try to merge two realities when they do that. And that's a big misnomer. It's important to see it in this way. We need to, whatever, whatever informs you, forms you period. Whatever informs you, forms you. So when it comes to global, let's be globally informed and locally expressed. So what happens is what we do is we say, all right, what are these global themes that everybody is starting to have in common? And how does that express locally? And how could we have a better conversation about it because of what we're seeing globally? At the end of the day, nothing happens at a global level. I know a lot of people will be angry at that statement. Mm. I'm a super global individual. My cross is tied to the ends of the earth in terms of calling, but it always happens at a local church level. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I lead global tables, man. I sit at the tables with dudes like Ellie Bonilla, Ashley Wilson, these people, and we talk a lot, but we can't make anything happen. It's those boots on the ground, those individuals there. So global really is, how can we be informed by these global things by putting ourselves in spaces where global trends are emerging and those conversations are happening? And how can we hear from the Holy Spirit to say, that's how, that's how this works in your local context. And that's how yeah. the conversation needs to shift. I can't tell you how many times we've been able to shift our context when it comes to the next generation based on global, global trends that have emerged that has won for us like 100%. It's just yeah. been such a powerful thing. So global, vital, but it's globally informed and locally expressed. That's the best way as a local pastor to be thinking about that. We, we've said on the show, I don't know how many times, that we believe that the local church still holds the keys mm-hmm. to solve most of the social crises in the world, wherever they are, in whatever context they are, right, in the cultures. Now, I would say, again, the, the backside of that conversation is the local church hasn't always accessed or activated the power that they have in those communities or cultures, right? Fair statement, right? We, we understand that. Um, but we really began this podcast, you know, we kind of talked about this about the show for, before a little, a little while ago. Um, we really kind of started this podcast surrounding two questions. One, why are young adults leaving the church? And two, can we get them to stay or how do we get them to come back? Sort of, sort of those conversations. And, and just a little bit, my, my heart and my mind are, are is tweaking. I think, the more exposure I get with conversations like this, the more I talk to college students across campus, the more I'm thinking that young adults aren't necessarily leaving the church. What they're doing is they're changing the church. Mm. And so by changing the church, people like me who have had a lens of church being one way or church being 
a specific stylistic groove or whatever, right? I mean, whatever things are, they're changing the church. They're not really leaving the church. We're the young, young adults coming to Christ all over the world in masses. Right. Right. They're hungry for Jesus. Yeah. I mean, there's mm-hmm. an outpouring on Gen Z like I've never seen before. So they're changing the church. So in your mind, instead of answering the question, why are they leaving the church? How are they changing the church? And how do we incorporate them into, um, how do we how do we build that bridge between both realities? That's good. Yeah, I have so many answers to this. I'm going to do it fast. Um, <laughs> you can do it slow. We got time. Yeah. Two examples. Um, two examples. Uh, one time I was teaching in Thailand and there was 25 national youth directors from 25 Asia Pacific countries. And they're all there to talk about youth and young adult ministry and how to do it better. And I started talking about some global changes, Gen Z, uh, no longer being a generation of consumers, but a generation of publishers. And what does that right. mean to us? And as I'm talking about that, I had the guy from Vietnam scratching his head and the guy from Japan was bawling his eyes out. So I stopped. I said, what's going on? I talked to the dude from Vietnam and he said, I can see for the first time ever that we're about 10 years out from where you're at, but we have been tracking with the trends that you talked about in your past. And that's yeah. where we are. And now we have a roadmap for the future. We're excited about it. I turned to the guy from Japan. I'm like, tell me what's going on. He said, Terry, 10 years ago, we were seeing what you're talking about today. Mm. We went to our national leadership and asked if we could change our approach to reaching youth and young adults in our nation. And we did not get the approval nor the blessing. And we were told instead to maintain and hold the line because nothing has changed for this X amount of years and nothing's going to change. He said, Terry, 10 years ago, we had 30 teenagers in every church on average. And today we have 0.7 teenagers in every church on average. And the reason isn't because they left the church. They just left my church. Yeah. And then I'm in a room with David Kinnaman from Barna, who's saying 30 million young people are going to leave the church by 2050. Yeah. And he, and he, I asked him the question. I said, are we measuring where they're going? And he goes, it's interesting you say that because we started a new study and we're finding that they're not leaving the church. They're just leaving your church. Right. Because we are continually building church and answering questions that they're no longer asking. We have leaders fully equipped to reach a generation that no longer sits in their seats. So what they're doing to change the church to your point is they are forming up new faith communities where questions that they're actually asking can be answered, number one, and number two, so that they could have a place to publish, to externalize Mm -hmm. and not just consume. Because today church is built for consumers, not public. And with the advent of web three coming up, we're gonna go from consumers to publishers to creators. So if we don't have biblical literacy and biblical foundations nailed down now, and we're losing people from the church and forming up their own realities of faith communities, that's where the danger could be. So I think they're changing the church by signaling, look, this doesn't, this model doesn't work anymore. And people who are like, well, what do you mean? The models worked for centuries. Look, the model doesn't matter. I have this cup. I can put coffee in here, or I can put coffee in a mug. I can put coffee in a travel thermos or coffee in a mug. It changes shape based on the container it's in, but it's still coffee. Right. We have to be comfortable as a church, as church leaders on changing our models so that we might have a different shape, but it's still the gospel we pour yeah. into it. And we have to be content with doing that. So I think young adults are changing it by A, signaling to us that change needs to happen by leaving and forming up new faith communities. And number two, showing us the shape that it should be. Yeah. I love that and hate that all at the same point because yeah. like I love I love this sort yeah. of change and be able to adaptate and adapt and be adaptive and all these things and then I'm, the extra me goes but I like it a certain way like like it's yeah. it's a tension that we live at and and so I think and I love this what you're saying they're gonna move from 
uh, consumers, the publishers, the creators, and they already are. Yep. And and I don't know that we need to slow them <coughs> slow them down, Terry. But maybe how do we speed up our equipping process so as they create, they're creating content, they're creating tribes that are are biblically sound and and hold truth. Because what I feel like is some of these kids get saved, radically saved. Yeah. They take to their platforms, they take to their faith communities, and they're just ready to run, but, but they're not really equipped. They're not equipped. You're right. And they're not ready for those uh, bigger conversations that are coming down the line for themselves and uh, for others around them. I think what we have to do is we have to reframe what does meaningful discipleship look like? Mm -hmm. Because I think what we call discipleship in churches isn't discipleship. It's just enhanced relationship. And when you ask any church, what's your discipleship model? We'll say small groups, but how many people are becoming more biblically formative and more biblically literate? You know, at the end of the day, you have a, this is the most biblically illiterate generation in yep. history, while at the same time being the most entrepreneurial generation in history. Right. And so we have a lot of people when, who are full of a lack of knowledge, no longer building their lives and their ministries around something biblical, but around something cultural. So I think if we're going to make the proper shifts and some of the changes, we have to call discipleship what it is. We have to say, are we really giving you a biblical foundation or are we giving you a cultural foundation? Mm -hmm. We have to teach people how to take culture, filter it through the word and understand that what comes out can be redeemed and run with rather than allowing them to take the word and push it through culture so that what comes out at the bottom is Christianity without the Christ is secular humanism. Mm -hmm. We have to do a great job when it comes to really helping them navigate this by reframing discipleship helping them to become more biblically literate and biblically sound in their approach so that whenever they start creating, whenever they start changing models, they do it with the foundation in the word and a foundation in strong, healthy, vibrant discipleship. Yeah. Cause without it, like I said, they're going to create their own realities in like, when I say post-truth, I'm not saying post-Christian, I'm saying my truth is the truth, even though it doesn't reflect yep. the truth. Post-truth. Now you have platforms online that are now all going to go towards creating a reality around that truth. If we don't give them proper equipping today, then what they create tomorrow will be a pale comparison to what Christ wanted the church to be. So I think that equipping piece is so necessary for yeah. the future. And I 100% and agree. And, and this is the thing, the tension. Discipleship, true discipleship, biblical literacy is slow. Like it takes time. And, and an instantaneous generation that wants to go, how do we, how do we help and I don't, again, I don't want to say slow them down, but we have to to somehow get them to sit for a minute and sort of ingest the scripture, learn the truth, because they are like on go at all times. Like, so how do we hold that tension? I feel like that's a tension. We we, we maybe you have a solution. I don't know. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is we have to learn to change our models so that we lead people into a firsthand experience of Christ and not a secondhand. Mm. A lot of our church models lead people into a second hand. You look at uh, Samuel sleeping by the Ark of the Covenant. He hears the voice of God. He goes to Eli, the priest. Eli's like, it's not me. Go back to bed. He hears the voice of God. Goes to Eli again. Eli says, go back to, get, go back to bed. The third time Eli said, hold up. That's God. When you go lay down and you hear the voice of God again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Yeah. If Eli was a pastor today, Eli would have got out of bed, say, let me tell you what God is saying to you. And then I'm going to drop it in three quick points with some alliteration. And I'm <laughs> going to tell you how to translate the voice of God into your life, yeah. thereby robbing Samuel of a firsthand experience with the Lord. And yet our discipleship models, our curriculum, our preaching on weekends, yeah. all these people into our experience with God 
which to them is a secondhand experience with God. And I think we need to do a better job of leading people into a wrestling match with their faith. Like Jacob, every great wrestling match is followed by a great identity change. We need to do that by leading them into a firsthand experience with the Lord. That right there, if we're willing to look at our models and our content and our approaches, that's going to answer about 80% of the problems. The other one is we have to teach them how to exegete culture really well. And we have to teach them to give them the tools. Giving them the tools is quick. I can give you tools on how to do something and teach you how to use those tools. The process of learning how to become a master is slow. And we need to give them a t- tools to exegete culture through the context of the word so that we don't need to be there holding their hand whenever they encounter difficult situations. Yeah, I, so it, in my mind, my mind is spinning because here on campus, um, you know, I've been here three, three and a half years. And really from day one, one of the, the, the couple great, there are a couple great needs that I've seen, not because Lee is bad, but I'm seeing this on a lot of college campuses, if not sure. all college campuses, including the Christian ones. Yeah. Right. We don't have on a college campus a holistic approach to a systematic discipleship reality for our students. Right. And so, so the big puzzle for me as a campus pastor is one, is that even realistically humanly possible? Like, I know it's not possible to get every student to necessarily go through a discipleship program, but in my mind, I'm trying to think. How from a freshman through a senior do I do the equipping so that they can have that firsthand experience? How do, sure. I, how do I give them permission and give them tools to actually to set and to wait and, and work through and to hear the mm-hmm. voice of God and, and to do all those things? And so, so for me, as, as the campus pastor here, this is probably the, the problem. I won't say the problem. I guess that's an okay way to describe it or the issue or, or the, the thought that I'm trying to solve. Right. So um, this conversation is, is super important to me because it's, it's, it's particularly where I'm living. But the cool thing mm. is, I think the cool thing is it is possible. It is. It, it is doable. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think I think by by helping us change our models and the way we think, I think we can get there. So yeah, I, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't think we're too far from losing our way. Like, I think we lost our way as when we sold our soul to an attractional model. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm using strong language and I know that very That's well. Okay. I say it because I, <laughs> I want to see what kind of reactions I get from people listening. But I think, so, I think the attractional model mattered. I think it was important. I think the church was in a dreadful need of an update in mm-hmm. regard to culture and changing the shape of its container. Right. The problem is that with that, there was a lot of immediate fast growth. And so in order to accommodate that growth, our discipleship models became attractional our, and they shifted. I mean, Sunday school was a slow burn, right? It was yes. that discipleship format. And we honestly, 86, every foundational model and called it small groups. And then we're like, yeah. well, let's think on this. It's a new fresh thing. And now you have young people saying, can we meet as a small group on like Sunday morning, maybe before church and just go deeper in the word of God. I'm like, like Sunday school. And they're like, what's Sunday school? <laughs> And so like, yeah, we're shifting back to that model. So I think we're only about 20 years off from that. But I think with the end of COVID, or with COVID, with the beginning of COVID, the attractional model was already dying and shifting to a more missional slash relational model. And by relational, I mean, body of Christ driven community accountability model. COVID just put that on fast track and put it five years ahead. So when we emerge from COVID, you have megachurch pastors who are doubling down on the attractional model because that's what got them there. They're doubling down on attractional within discipleship because that's what got them there, finding out that that's not maintaining anymore. So they're going back to the book saying, why aren't people showing up? 
because we're serving them something that they don't yeah. that they don't want anymore. So I don't think we're too far off. I think it's possible. I think it A happens at a local church level, B happens at an educational level, C happens at a global level in that order. Mm-hmm. But it has to happen at a local level for it to matter. And that yeah. doesn't mean like a local ecclesiastical congregation, like all Catholics, all Lutherans, all Pentecostals are going to do this. But it's me as a local church saying, this is how I'm going to choose to do discipleship to meet the needs of this generation. That's where it matters the most. So let me give you a microscopic sort of picture of what that looks like in real time here. So we just came through convocation, right? You're just getting free consulting, aren't you? Yes, I am. actually. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is great. This is a great show for me. I don't know about you. No, I'm taking lots of notes. Lots of notes for me. Yeah. So uh, continue the conversation, Terry Parkman. No, I don't. <laughs> no, no. But I think I think the here's a microscopic picture. So what happens? We just came through convocation. We had probably, in my opinion, one of the most well engaged convocations that I've seen or been a part of since since we've since I've been on campus. Right. Yeah. There is no question in my mind, and this is a whole different story for a different day. There's an outpouring and a revival happening on our campus in multiple pockets of communities. So here's here's what it's looking like. Students come to me all the time and say, hey, we're starting a new prayer group with these seven or eight people in, in our in our choir ensemble. Um, I've got Greek clubs starting prayer groups in their house. They're coming to me and say, hey, 40, 50 people are showing up at my house. I don't know what to do. And so these microscopic reflections of what you're actually saying is playing out in real time. They're not going to the local church for it. They're creating their own ecclesial sort of reality that meets their needs where they can dive deeper, where they can, they can experience more, where they can reflect more, those kinds of things. And so, so people locally, not only our campus, but probably, you know, all the Christian universities out there saying, why don't your college students come to our churches? I mean, we're literally next door, right? Well, the answer is you're not, you're not meeting them where they are. You're expecting them to move into what you're already doing, and they're not interested. Yeah, they're not interested. I'm not gonna toot around horn, but like that's what like we. I'm a church planner so here in town, so we have this like weird relationship for in, church. primarily and primarily for young adults. Like 85 percent of our church is under the age of 25. Yeah, and so we are we're trying to be that model, like of a local church space that's authentic, putting students on stage, putting students in leadership. And there's been good response. And there's also been response of like, I don't know what to do with this. Cause my, I've never had a church expression that looked like I can be in charge of something. Um, so it's this weird tension that we're living in where they're going. And, and, and Rob, this is maybe a question for you in, in sort of the settings you're in these ecclesial expressions that are happening on campus. They're not happening in local church context. Are they willing to take them into a local church context or are they afraid they're going to be rejected by them? I don't think, I don't know, and you could probably speak to this as much as anybody, Terry. I'm not sure it's a fear of rejection. I think it's a fear that they're going to be suffocated. I I would agree with that. I think it's suffocated, but it's like, all right, so you know, everything today goes straight to the end user. There's no middleman. Like, we want to go straight to the end user, and often the church building is the middleman. How Mm. can I get this without having to go through the filter of somebody else and get, quote unquote, permission to do what I can do on my own? Right. The most entrepreneurial gen- and innovative generation in history, they're not playing the game with the middleman. So I think we're A, wired to be that. B, they don't want to be suffocated. But in regard to this, like, look at denominational coverings. I think in our lifetime, we're going to see them only serve to credential people. And mm-hmm. that's about it. And I think we're going to see local churches 
take the place of national ecclesiastical denominational coverings. But what you're seeing is into the future to where certain bodies are saying, I don't need even the local. I need to, I'm going to go for my own local. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to do a good job of is not creating the vehicle, but building the guardrails. And I think if I'm going to invite them into my church, I need to let them know that they can drive their vehicle of faith into my church. And I'm going to provide the theological and biblical guardrails so they don't go off road. And it's like, but I can build a Lamborghini Diablo of faith. They're driving the 72 Corolla or Gremlin or whatever that they want to drive. That's a janky vehicle of faith. At least it's theirs and not yours. Yeah. And many times, many students fall away from the Lord, especially in colleges. They fall away from the Lord when they leave their communities because they never learned how to build their own vehicle of faith. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen become most attractional isn't the lights, the smoke and everything, which I love, by the way, I think. But I think what's most attractional is, is this a space that I can drive my vehicle of faith into and be informed about it and continue to build this vehicle of faith without having to get in the backseat of the lead pastor's vehicle of faith and call that my own? If we can fill, put up those guardrails, I think that's the money right there. And a yeah. lot of people are like, well, what if they ping the guardrail? Well, praise God. Now you know exactly where they need development. But yeah. without them driving into the guardrail, you're just guessing in the dark where they need development. Yeah. So, so this, I mean, maybe this is the wrong direction to go. And if it is, we can change no, the conversation, no, no, but, but I'm, as you're, it. as you're talking, Take I think, risk. I think the, um, I don't say the extreme side of that, but maybe a reflection of that is this resurgence of the house church movement. I mean, you think about great leaders like Francis Chan, you think about Wayne Cordero, uh, a great friend of mine is leading a, a massive house church movement in Hawaii. Like, like that, that is a microscopic reflection of what you're talking about, right? That, is that is that would you say that that's that level of intimacy that level of autonomy or is that something a little bit different yeah i think models models are not sacred let's put right. that on there models can be blown up and rebuilt models do one thing and they meet needs that's mm-hmm. that's it models yeah. meet needs and when they no longer meet needs they need to change you know it's like we get cars updated every year because we have new needs that we didn't even know we needed and so but they're helping us to to meet those needs we our houses are built different they're new models to meet new needs and many times churches don't change their models because they think the models are sacred they think that they're the temple and god told them to build it exactly that way and it's not that way and i think what we're seeing with the house church movement is a need being met it's not the house church model that's magical yeah, yeah. That it provides. Mm-hmm. And I would argue you can meet that same need in a mega church. We just have to be willing to change the structures. And not often house churches can be more nimble. They could pivot a lot quicker. And mm-hmm. that's why they're a bit more attractive, I would say. But if large churches are willing to change their models to meet that need, I think I think it can happen truly anywhere. So so a lot of times in California, sorry. No, 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 no. no these are great questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Listen, this is my dissertation. I'm geeking out right now. So like no, a lot in California, the way we would plant churches, you know, we had 20 some campuses in Southern California. The way we would plant churches is a lot of times we would discover the micro sites first. The people who are gathering just to gather because they want to be together and they don't have necessarily a tribe or a local church or an affinity group that they're with. They're gathering around together around an idea or a concept that they love to be together. We would discover those micro sites, you know build around them, right? Structure around them and then see if they flourish into campuses. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Right. So, I I mean, I think when we start talking about models, that, that is a model, but I think, I think the larger point is, is that we're, we, 
are we going into where they are, listening to what they say, and then meeting their needs according to what they're experiencing in their own communities and cultures? Yep, I, I agree. I think that's important um, to go where they are to meet their needs and, and to answer the questions they're asking. I think if you want to go to that extreme, then it's also forming the gospel to a place that meets their immediate needs and not letting and not letting the gospel be the gospel and they have to run into that. That's where I think the church has gone off yeah. road in yeah. trying to explore this as they've said, yeah. we're just there, we're meeting them where they're at. And they often, for the sake of engagement, reduce the gospel to something more transactional. Yeah. And I think we have to continue, especially today, we're going to see it in five years. You're going to see everything start to, people start to expect more from church than church has ever given before in regard to creating space for them to create their own spiritual reality with God. And if we don't have those guardrails, the gospel solid, allow the gospel to offend them where it needs to offend them, allow the gospel to sharpen them where it needs to sharpen them. If we water that piece down, we're going to have a shadow of the church and call that church. Yeah. And so I, I agree with you to your point. They were meeting needs and meeting them where they're at. I think we've seen a lot of churches then water themselves down and become so postmodern and post-Christian mm-hmm. that they're, that they're common interest clubs when it comes to spirituality more than anything yeah. else. Oh, that's good. So, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So, so Terry, if I'm the, the, the pastor of a 125 member church who you just stepped on everything I believed about what we were doing, trying to hold the line on hmm? and I'm listening to this podcast and hopefully you're still listening to this point in the episode. <laughs> What would be sort of one, two, maybe three, just quick handlebars for them to go? Okay, these are these are the things I got to do to start making the shift because every shift is at a different pace, different speed. But a, a pastor somewhere, small church, medium sized church, who knows they got to shift, what would be sort of those first steps? Um, release, release the need to know everything about what your church needs. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's so easy to be like, Hey God, I'm doing this and it's up to me to navigate the future. It's up to me to chart the course and allow other voices that don't have a direct stake in what you do to speak into it because they're not going to have a bias and they're not going to have an agenda. I think it's important to do that. I think second, it's important to get feedback from the congregation. It's as simple as saying, what do you wish we'd stop doing? What do you wish we'd stop talking about? What do you wish we'd start talking about? And what do you wish we'd start doing? Pastors say we love feedback as long as it's good. You know what I mean? We say we love it, but we really hate it when it goes against everything that we're passionate about. I think that's vital. I think another thing is to understand that where change is needed in one place might not be needed in your church. Um, so what we have to do is we have to understand like, yo, this food is going to be good for my kid when they're older, but right now they need milk. Right mm-hmm. now they need baby food. Right now they need stuff that's not going to impact their gut negatively. And it food changes as a kid grows in the same way change has to be served up a little differently. So it's really saying, how can this be contextualized where I'm at in a meaningful way? Um, it's, it's really hard as a leader, especially launching something, because once you start tasting success, you really want to keep riding that train of success. Yeah. And you think that you're the only one that can see around the corner, but really enlist other people to come in. And that really does help a lot. Change management is difficult. So I think what any pastor should do is, or leader should do is become excellent at change management. Because not only do you have to see the changes and bring the changes, but you have to navigate changes with people who don't might not agree. You know, it's like when you change something up in your kid's schedule, they're going to fight you because they had an expectation. Well, that doesn't change when they're adults. Adults fight you when they had an expectation. 
you know, and so change yeah. management, I think, is vital and I think is key. Lastly, and most importantly, be, listen to the Holy Spirit. He's going to speak mm -hmm. to you. He loves your context and your church way more than you do, and he has better plans than you do. You know, in the same way we jockey on other churches and say they should bring changes, the Holy Spirit's doing that to you in heaven about your church. So say, Holy Spirit, what do I got to change mm -hmm. in my area and help me to understand the timing of these changes so that it could be the most healthy um, transition possible for my church? Yeah, that's good. That's super helpful. Yeah. Like, and I think the difficulty, Terry, is, and maybe it's my context and my age, because it was, I grew up attractional model. Um, mm -hmm. We go looking for the cookie cutter to make it work. Yeah. Like we we go to the conference, we go to the the thing, we go to Behind Elevation or whatever they have, or we go to Willow Creek, or we go to Saddleback, or we go to Craig Rochelle's thing, and we we take all the notes of how they're doing it, and we want to lay that over our context and go. Now we're going to blow up, and it mm -hmm. never happens. And I think the 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 due diligence of the pastor is what you're saying is to to do the work locally to know what change has to have happen where you are for sure um, and, and i think that's the challenge of it because we just want to quick fix it we want to be like yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna change our music or we're gonna add this or we're gonna do that and it's all gonna just take off and it it, it never does <laughs> like yeah. no it doesn't and i agree and i think to your point i think it's lazy work when pastors take stuff that from other churches and slap it onto theirs i i don't think it takes into consideration it's like I go back to parenting because I'm in the thick of it, you know, um, and I go back to where I see other kids behave nice. And so I can slap these disciplines on my kids and they're like, where is this coming from? Why are you doing this to me right now? I think it's important for a leader to get a vision a and a, and a perspective on what God wants. And then to go to these places and say, does these things that I'm seeing fits into the vision that God gave me? Yeah. And if it doesn't, no matter how good it is, don't implement it just because it's successful somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be so spirit led. And I think we throw that out. I think we try to, okay. Uh, and I know we're running out of time here, but I think this is so important to say at the end of all this, we try to get so much clarity that we don't need faith when it comes to stepping mm -hmm. out. In the wow. gives us. You don't need, look, we have such an addiction to clarity that when God gives us a vision, we don't move until we have 100% clarity. But the Bible says in, I'm sorry, but the Bible says in, um, in Hebrews 11, it says it's impossible to please God without faith. So if God's going to give you a vision, he's not going to give it to you with 100% clarity. He's going to only give it to you with 30% clarity, 20% clarity, 60% clarity, and the rest is going to have to be filled with by faith. And instead of stepping out in faith, we get as much clarity as we can, and then we go look to other people and to inform us on how to fill the gap rather than the God. And I think it's so important, no matter how much, how much you see other people doing the thing that God is telling you to do, you got to at some point step out in faith with the model that God's put in your heart and believe oh, in it and trust God to fill in the gap because God's not going to bless something that doesn't require faith because it's impossible to please God without faith. So I ask myself the question, when was the last time I did something for my church that required faith out of me? When was the last time I started a program that I used faith to make happen? Yeah. When was the last time I, I wrote a sermon series that required faith? And if I didn't, did any of those things really please God? Or did I reduce his vision to a manageable place where I didn't have to risk anything? That is the starting point for change when it comes to the next generation. And I know this conversation, man, we scratch the surface, but that is a starting point for sure. That's 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 worth the price of admission. They nobody pays to listen to the podcast, but that was worth every penny they didn't pay. Hey. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, it was. And I think probably a great, great yeah. point to kind of wrap up and and wrap up this conversation and one that I think we're going to continue hopefully off the air and, and on the side and wherever else that we find each other together. But we have one final question we ask every one of our guests because we do record here at the lovely Lee University. Um, what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? You mean one lesson I've learned in ministry that didn't? Just in, in the college years, something you learned that was not in the classroom. It could be how to toss a pan pizza. It doesn't really yeah. matter. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm going to tell you something that I learned then that has really sustained me today. And that's, and that's this. Don't overestimate what you can do in six months and underestimate what God could do through you in six years. Um, anytime we start something new, and I had started a few new initiatives and movements and tried to anyway when I was in college. I, you start to think, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and this is where change needs to happen. Pick one thing, because that's the thing you're going to do for the first couple of years. But what you think is going to happen in six years, God's going to do far beyond that. And many times, because we don't know how to handle disappointment, we think that if it doesn't happen in six months, we're failures. Right. Manage that time properly. Hear from the Lord. Invest well. Learn about the context or the thing that the Lord is having you build. Because in six years, it's going to be something that has gotten away from you and become like a kingdom version of what God wanted. And you just get to be a part of the thing. Like yeah. it's going to be amazing. And though that really has helped me to have the discipline to stick with it when I've wanted to check out. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's, that's good. good. That's so good, Terry. I think a part two is in order. I think we need to do a second show for my own. <laughs> We're going to fly him down, fly him down to Cleveland. <laughs> I'm there. Let's do it now. Well, we, listen, we will definitely continue the conversation and, and hopefully share it with our friends. Um, but as we always say here at the Leadership Trip, you've got to see at the table. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's an honor. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Trip. If something from this episode was helpful for you, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may reshare it on our channels. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.